Welcome to everybody. Thank you all for joining us this morning. And uh, it's kind of gray and cloudy at Lake Union, where I am. And Chris says, it's sunny where we are visiting family near Palm Springs. Well, how lovely is that? Mm. I see Janelle is drinking some coffee or teas. Good morning. Oh, Marianne, who's your little friend? Well, there's so many Dharma cats, and I decided I needed one myself. <laughs> and this is DC. Okay. The Dharma, the Dharma cat. Okay, very good. <laughs> and Sue says, good morning from Marion, gray and cold and snuggling in a blanket. Yay. Yeah, I've got my heat on in here in my little office. Well, welcome to everybody. And thank you for coming and wanting to. So as everyone, I think, who's joined us this morning knows that we're in the last month of the whole year on the studying the threes and the, these October, I mean, November, December, October, November, and December has been the three pillars. And we on Sunday morning have been talking about wisdom. Over the past two weeks, <clears throat> Arv and Lindell have given wonderful introductions and guideposts and instructions for working with wisdom. I borrowed from both of them in preparation for my talk this morning. I was really inspired by what Lindell shared last week when she talked about the three types of cultivation of, of wisdom, the first being the learning through books and listening to the teachings and studying kind of what we do on Sunday morning and Monday night and other times where we hear the Dharma. The second is reflecting or thinking about what one has learned and the last spiritual development or direct experience. So my talk this morning is mostly to do with the latter, with spiritual development or direct experience. I can't claim that wisdom is what arose in my examples, but I believe and, I, and I've really felt that delusion was decreased and the door to wisdom was opened up. So borrowing from both Arv and Lindell, the key characteristics or elements of wisdom that I've been uh, practicing with, first of course is mindfulness, which includes that initial learning and which leads to um, clear seeing, discernment, or actually that reflecting, that understanding what is actually happening. And as part of that understanding, I think this one's really important for me. I call it confrontation. It's an internal looking at my beliefs, my patterns, habits, conditioning, and doing it with as much honesty and non-judgmentalness as I can. I ask over and over again, when the mind sends me these thoughts and emotions, is this true? Can I depend upon the thoughts and emotions that are arising as being true and leading to skillful and wholesome actions? Another important piece borrowed from Arv is being clear about our aspirations for the process. 
what's really important for me? That wise view that Arv talked about. How am I aligned with my values? What about my aspirations for freedom and how does my daily practice and my cultivation of wisdom, what does that have to do with freedom? I try to imbue this entire process with kindness. And lastly, it's an ongoing process. We keep going back to that initial mindfulness, that initial clear seeing. And we keep asking ourselves, has my understanding changed? Am I closer to wise understanding? So as with all the Dharma talks, I think everybody who's part of the Sunday morning leadership does this, we start thinking about our talk several weeks ahead of time. And I thought for sure my talk was going to be about aging and death because that's a very central part of my practice. But last week I had a full-blown meltdown in my business and I figured that I'm not the only one who comes on Sunday mornings who has meltdowns. So I thought I would first start with that example. So it was last Wednesday, it was the last day of a three-day project of cleaning out the last of my partner's collections. Some of you, those of you who've come to Sunday mornings know that when Bill died six years ago, I got rid of 220 tons of steel. I had an estate sale. I had these huge dumpsters sitting out here for weeks. Um, but I left this one area, which we call this the wood storage area, probably 15 to 16 tons of wood, all sizes, shapes, lengths, painted, unpainted, some of it okay to burn, a lot of it was pressure treated. There was windows up there, some plastic pipe and doors, a few interesting doodads, but we had mostly gotten rid of all those. And a couple cool mirrors. I knew it was gonna be expensive. I had to contract with some local hauling companies to take the wood away. Each truck that comes to haul stuff away is over $700. Then there were four guys, um, who were working plus me and I was paying for them. So the last day of this three-day project, the head guy is sick and the second in command, who I know and he works for the first guy, he's indecisive, not very well organized. And we already had a hydraulic leak in my forklift, so I had to rent one. So in the midst of everything, another one of my tenants comes over and asks if he can use the forklift. So the second in command said yes. And so everything grounded to a halt while the second in command went over to help the other. And while this was happening, by this point of the last day, because the first guy was sick, there were only two other staff people working. They're sitting, I'm sitting in my office where I am right now, looking out the window, watching them sitting around smoking. Well, I'm sitting in my office watching this and I was smoking inside. I was so upset. This is costing me thousands of dollars and they're just sitting around. And then the first, the guy goes and takes the forklift and I'm just like melting down. So one of my first responses was wanting to talk to somebody about it. I wanted validation that the way I felt was right. 
So of course I called my son, poor Pete. He listened and he commiserated as he always does. And he always brings some good perspective. Fortunately, all after just a minute or two, I realized he didn't really need or benefit from this dump that I was doing. So I said I loved him and I hung up. Then I really wanted to blame someone for how I was feeling about this. Whose fault is this? The tenant who asked for the forklift? Well, I've had a forklift here for all the years I've had tenants and it's always available to anyone. And even though he knew we were in the midst of this project, it wasn't really his problem. Was the second in command at fault because you know, he was stepping into his boss's shoes and he kind of knows that whenever the forklift is needed by anybody here at Pellington Properties, they just get to use it. Yes, he's not nearly as good as his boss in making decisions based on efficiency and good timing and stuff. But, you know, he was doing the best he could. Then I figured, well, I must be to blame because I should have done this five, six years ago when I had people to do the work and we had this estate sale and I could have saved a lot of money and I shouldn't have just done out of sight, out of mind. Then, of course, I thought maybe I should blame Bill because he collected all this stuff to begin with. But then I remembered that we've used his collections to build all the shops that I have here. We just had too much over. And then like magic <laughs> my practice kicked in and the first thing i remembered was this quote from utejania who says whenever you are upset look within there is nothing and nobody out there you can blame for your state of mind Oof. okay so I did my dumping excursion and my blaming excursion. And then there was, right in front of me, there was the practice. There was some mindfulness that kicked in. Oh, right, this is aversion. This is really not liking what is going on right now. This is restless, conditioned, unhappy mind, trying to figure out how best to proceed. And there was so much selfing you know, I'm the property owner, I'm paying for all this. And that, and not only that, I should have known better what to do. And, and then there was also that this mind is really sad. Here I am dealing with all this by myself and yada, yada, there's that one that's so familiar. You know, wanting to just like leave my office and go back to bed and have somebody go, oh, they're there, honey. Yeah, and then I, my mindfulness helped me see that this was practical mind. What are the best steps to take battling with emotional mind? How do I feel? And how do I best attend to both of these? The emotional responses are normal and natural, but are they helpful right now? And I know that, you know, I have enough awareness to know that I tend to shove down my emotions anyway. But then I realized, well, this was not really the moment to indulge in my emotional mind. I really needed to just get the project done. Um, so there was a lot of questioning, a lot of discerning, some making choices. You know, when I first started thinking about this, I was going to talk only about aging, illness, and death, but 
when this happened, I thought, wow, this is what happens to all of us. Life takes a turn. And it seems to be like the wrong turn. But there it is. It's the life I'm living in. And I need to go with these twists and turns. So I wanted to share with you what I think I cultivated moving, I'm hoping, towards some wisdom. Not self was actually came in pretty quickly. I realized, oh, right, this isn't personal. It's just what's happening. And I didn't need to reify this sense of myself as I'm the property owner, I'm the wallet here, I'm paying for everything. It's true I am, but that's all it is. It was just a fact. It wasn't like who I am in the world. Mindfulness, yeah, it kicked in, thank goodness. I mean, I'm so grateful for my practice. And it widened my perspective to everything else that was happening. You know, we made a good decision to clean out the wood storage. Yes, there are some bumps in the road, but this is the right thing to do. And oh, right view and my values. You know, what attitude and actions will bring out the best in me? I love how I've defined West view, right view that way. And what values do I aspire to include in my actions? So, you know, I went over to the second in command. I um, apologized for being so gritchy. And um, I realized that by being gritchy and upset and this shouldn't be happening, I was adding to the suffering of the moment, not relieving it. Wanting things to be different was definitely suffering. The second in command was having his own day of difficulties. And I remembered, you know, we spent a whole month in these three pillars on generosity. And I realized it's one of my values. It's what I aspire to, to live out in my daily life. So apologizing to him, taking on the responsibility for my behavior, thinking a little bit more about him and less about me, it was all good. And there was discernment. I kept on asking questions. I realized I had choices. And I also remembered, you know, right now the business has the money. I had decided to spend it. So I went ahead, I called the, the other um, hauling companies, reserved a couple trucks. And then the important piece at the end of this was forgiveness. Um, Arv defined it as giving up all hope of a better past. But my forgiveness was giving up all hope of a better present. This is what is happening. And we're all trying the best we can. You know, Philip Moffat talks about this all the time. He says, as best as you are able. Mm -hmm. And I realized if my best that day was not the absolute best of best, that was okay too. I'm okay. This was okay. I can be I can be kind. So was that wisdom? I don't know, but I think that I really did reduce the delusion that was operating. It wanted to take over, you know, blame and dump and be gritchy and get angry. And, and fortunately, you know, I didn't, the practice kicked in what teachers say about how the Dharma was doing me. So just for full disclosure on this, 
after the meltdown, I did go upstairs. I had a cup of tea and a piece of cherry pie just to make myself feel a little better. So now this is what I really thought I was going to talk about. Those of you who've come, been coming to Sunday mornings, and we so appreciate your regular attendance and the, the people who just drop in every now and then. I've shared so many times that the five recollections about aging, illness, death, loss, and, and karma are a central part of my practice. The changes that come with aging, illness, and loss, the impermanence of the body, the state of health, the loss of our abilities, the loss of everything and everyone I hold dear. It's something I start every sit with the five recollections. And we recently, in another Dharma group, we had a discussion about aging and someone called this a cosmic joke. Because here I am in the last year of my 70s. I'm making huge decisions about transitions, my advanced directives, the pulse, end of life, cleaning out my house, making changes about where I'm going to live. And I'm making all these decisions with diminished personal resources, diminished mental resources, diminished physical resources, diminished energy. And it's almost like if you believe in God, you could imagine this God being laughing because this is what, what happens. So I want to take some time to talk about how wisdom can really arise from contemplating and practicing with aging, illness, loss, and death. I think that by practicing with these truths, it actually encourages and enables wisdom to arise. It is said that the three characteristics of wisdom are severing, illuminating and dispelling the darkness of ignorance. So severing, cutting off our attachment to things being a certain way, illuminating, seeing the way things actually are, and certainly dispelling the darkness of ignorance. As I've worked with aging, illness, death, loss, it seems that Ignorance really wants to be front and center. And we nourish this ignorance when we only deal with these truths in an intellectual or cognitive way and avoid fully confronting them and embodying them. The first noble truth, as we all know, teaches us the importance of knowing dukkha and fully embodying the truth of it. Yeah, there is pain and sadness in the truth of aging, illness, loss, and death. Someone um, just, oh, Marianne was mentioning a Ram Dass quote. Another one of his is suffering is part of our training program to become wise. Suffering is part of our training program to become wise. So really feeling the dukkha of this all is part of it. Many of us deny the truth. And then we add a second error. This shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't be diminished. This shouldn't be happening at all, or especially it shouldn't be happening to me. The poet David White says that one of the key components of self-knowledge, which I think is a good 
um, uh, synonym for what we're talking about, or certainly a key part of wisdom. He says one of the key components is acknowledging all the ways we deny what is. All the ways we don't want to engage with it. All the ways we don't want to be here. And this is so true about aging, illness, and death. He also says that one of the key responses for us, once we fully grok this truth, is to cultivate a sense of humor about all the ways we don't want to be here. Another teacher, Philip Moffat, says the same thing, but with different words. He says that when we are fully available to all of life, fully available, not, not going somewhere else, wisdom flourishes. Fully available is just another way of saying what David White said, no denial of what is. Utejania says it a little differently. He says, wanting to understand is wisdom. Wanting a result is greed. So we use our practice to actually understand what's going on. We use our mindfulness and pay attention to all the ways we bump up against the truths of aging and diminishment. We understand what's happening is normal. It's just what it means to be in these human bodies. My doctor many years ago told me that the warranty ran out at 40. I got mad at him, you know, but it runs out whenever. Whatever these teachers are all saying, at least how I'm hearing them, is that our mindfulness practice is essential. We quiet down enough. We pay attention. We do that posture of both upright and relaxed, and we see the denial. We see the arguing. We see the resistance. And that awareness of the denial of the moment really gives us some choices, choices to act and think and respond with skillfulness and wholesomeness. So how do we cultivate wisdom around the truths of aging, illness, loss, and death? And here's some ideas. The first is knowing that aging is a gift. Many of us, gathered here this morning, have people in our lives who died young. All the young men who died of AIDS. My father died at 39, my sister at 44. My son has a really good friend who just died recently of brain cancer at 50. A friend's grandson died at 22. When Bill was, he was 71, but he was so strong and healthy it still seemed too young, too soon. So one way of looking at aging is it's a gift. We get to continue to live. We get to continue to see, smell, feel, touch, care and be cared about, to love and be loved. This attitude about aging and loss as well really falls into Arv's category of right view. And it's also a way to live with kindness towards ourselves. So yeah, it's not an easy gift, but it's a gift nonetheless. Secondly, I think it's really a good idea to recite the five recollections and do it often. What I do at the start of every sit is I 
recite them to myself. And then I pay attention to whether any of those phrases elicited an uh-oh, a kind of sense of dread or fear or resistance, or a strong desire to know what's next, this not feeling comfortable with the uncertainty of life. And sometimes there's a sense of ease with the truth of it all and the truth of uncertainty. When I start each sit that way, it kind of informs or sets a tone for the rest of my sit. Sometimes I just notice that I'm sitting with that uh-oh mind. Or sometimes just sitting with how much I dislike uncertainty. And sometimes just, wow, the mind is really at ease. A third thing is to remember that discernment is not an intellectual exercise. Our lives will come to an end. And we can't really imagine what that is, even as we know that it is going to happen. We notice when we bump up against life, those holding on moments, those pushing away moments, the moments of being with ease, and we are examine our responses and learn from them. Honesty, that, that inner honesty, you know, there, at Clear Mountain Monastery, there was a monk who visited a few months ago and someone asked him, what's the most important thing you've learned in the 17 years of being a monk? And he said, being honest inside myself. So that honesty, it's the way we call BS on some of what arises in our minds and the stuff we believe. You know, so we really, it's active, this honesty. You know, we ask ourselves, are these thoughts that I hold on to, are they really helpful? Are they leading me to my aspirations? Are they helping me go towards freedom? I mean, we know that life is uncertain and impersonal. We don't know how life is going to unfold. And when it does, it's just what life is doing. And we can include kindness and humor. Another thing, and I realize I'm going on a little long here, I encourage you to think about how do you currently talk with yourself and with friends and loved ones about aging, loss, and death? You know, we all have our phrases, things like, you know, oh, I'm falling apart, aging isn't for the faint-hearted, I'm an old lady, what did you expect? Or, you know, I just want to die in my sleep. I mean, whatever whatever our phrases are, do those phrases include certain judgments about them, certain positions, a, a, an element of this shouldn't be happening? Are there some ways that we can really look at our language, both the internal and the external, and see whether this is how you want to be responding to the truths of aging, illness, loss, and death? There was recently an article by Annie Lamott in, um, the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. And she says, this is what older age means. We do what we can. We pick up smaller things and we move. We move more tentatively. But we also remember that we know, we know deeply inside of us some of the lies of our culture. The lie of if you buy or do or achieve this or that, you will be happy and rich. 
she says, nope, remember that love and service make us rich, and there's no limit, no age limit of them. So aging, illness, loss, and death are universal truths. They happen to everybody. None of it's personal. Yeah, we can confront, we can meet these truths with fear and resistance, or we can receive them as, hey, this is what it means to be human. And then I do want us to remember that this isn't a one-time-and-done thing. You keep coming back to it over and over again, whatever helps you. For me, it's Mary Oliver's poem, When Death Comes. You know, she says she wants to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what it's going to be like, this cottage of darkness. Whatever helps you get there. And then I want to close with... Just a couple comments about faith, which I, I know it's kind of odd to bring that up, but there's this quote from Utejania that I think is really helpful. He says, very few people know about or do any balancing of faith and wisdom. Those who are very intellectual and think too much, that's me, sometimes have very little faith and they do too much questioning. But if someone has a lot of faith and does, do, does not do any questioning, wisdom becomes weak. And I think reflecting on faith in wisdom is really important. I have a lot of faith in the Dhamma and in my practice. Yesterday at Clear Mountain, um, Ajahn Kovilo was talking about faith. And he said that um, faith in the Buddhist tradition is the belief that it is possible with practice to develop wise and skillful mind states and wise and skillful actions. The more we practice mindfulness, no self, wise view, discernment, compassion, kindness, humor, and forgiveness, and the more we're aligned with our values, wisdom can thrive. Thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment and let all, oh, I shared a lot of words. So we have time now to share with each other. How do we cultivate wisdom? You know, for some of us, holidays, this particular holiday is challenging and triggering. So that might be an area you might want to talk about. Or maybe you had a recent meltdown um, or something less than a full-blown meltdown, but maybe you had some challenging moments in your week. Was there, were there any doorways to wisdom that opened? Was your practice alive and well? Did it kick in for you? Um, or anything else as to how do you cultivate wisdom. Hi and welcome back. Um, I hope folks will be willing to share some of your own insights around how you cultivate wisdom. So feel free to either um, go to the reactions button and raise your hand so I can see you. But I, I, I have a big enough monitor. I see everybody. So you could also just go like that.
or just unmute yourself. I think you can. I think there are just so many doorways to wisdom. Marianne, please. You're still muted. There you oh, go. So it's your story about the woodshed and all of that is so apt to something that's been dogging me for two years. Mm. I had to put things into storage uh, because I had so much downsizing to do. I couldn't get it all done before the landlord wanted me out so we could remodel the apartment, new owner. And I, I'm in a 300-square-foot studio, 350-square-foot studio, which is fine. But I have all the storage I've been paying for two years because it just feels like too much, and all I want to do is meditate and read and study Dharma. <laughs> and uh, coincidentally, <laughs> uh, yesterday, I, I had... Before Vipassana, I had about 20 years of Zen practice, uh, and I still have a foot in there. And I signed up for the winter practice period online at uh, Upaya. And I feel that I've been trying to make decisions on, on the practical level about the storage. I'm not attached to any of it. It's, it's more like I don't know what to do. And I decided... I'm just going to do dharma and let let it percolate on the back burner and not think about it and let the wisdom come from a really deep place out of three weeks of not talking and keeping the schedule with everybody else. And, and I thank you for your sharing of <laughs> what it means to I deal with you. things even when you don't want them and, you know. Yeah. And all the things that go with it. Um, I so appreciate, Marianne, you sharing about, you know, letting things percolate. There's wisdom when you know that that's what, what's being called for. It's letting some things percolate, that the decision didn't necessarily have to be made right now. That sometimes no action is the wise action. You know, and how, how we know that, and that we eventually... Learn to trust our own. I mean, it's so funny how Buddhism teaches us, don't trust what comes up in your mind, don't believe it. And yet, this is this amazing capacity. So what else are we going to trust? So we walk that kind of tense you know, path. of, And then that's when I think we have some faith that, oh, this really feels right. This is right. And... Then you go with it, and if you learn that it wasn't 100% right, then you learn from that, you know? But it sounds like a wonderful three-week practice as well, so I, I wish you well with that. Thanks for sharing that. Anybody else? Well, thank you, as always. And had some good sharing in our group to the same effect. Oh, good. good. Keep practicing and the wisdom. I love comes. the breakout groups. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're they're very uh, supportive and encouraging. Mm -hmm. I discovered as I was working on the talk 
this idea that, that came to me was that there are doorways to wisdom and that our practice opens up those doorways. And sometimes they're only open like this bit, but other, you know, the more practice, I think they open up wider. It's, that's my experience. And I know that I'm just like this genetically optimistic, everything's good kind of, it's my, you know, it's, I don't know how I got this way, but it's where I am at. So anybody else, anything you want to share? The groups were good. Yeah. So, yes, please, Thomas. Yeah, I can share a little bit. I was, um, very inspired, Suze, by why you were talk, how you were talking about aging, and uh, and that is a source of wisdom. And um, I'm I'm very much uh, attracted to that perspective, and, and and sort of taking that avenue that you lay out. Um, one of the things that brought me to to mindfulness actually was reading Eckhart Tolle uh, a while ago, and he talks about that. You as you as you are a younger person, you know, you're, you're sort of focused on expanding your life. You know, you get a education, a career, a family, you get kids, you know, you get a bit, bigger place to live. You're, you're sort of expanding. And then it's at a, comes a point in your life where there's a turning point and now you're more until you have to let go of things. And that is painful for uh, most people, but it's also a source of of wisdom and insight and connection with others. As as you talked about, it's a universal truth. We all mm-hmm. we all have to go down in that direction. And so I, I, I really, um, it, it was very inspiring to hear you, how you laid it out. And I, I really want to, in my own life, uh, I, I want to I wanna make space for that. I want to make space for in exploring and gaining insight from that aging process. And I feel I'm, I'm still pretty early on in that process, but it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I see that as an opportunity, uh, and 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 I see that as non-personal. It's really nothing special about me. It's just something we all do. But it's 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 the opportunity of turning towards it. I think that I'm really interested in. So, just a few thoughts there. Oh, that turning towards. What a powerful two words. Turning towards. I mean, and it's what. Um, Donna Fald said it in the poem, you know, that's what we do. We turn towards it. We turn towards life. Thanks, Thomas. And may you have many, many years of practice with aging. That would be lovely. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I may have shared this. I just tell this little story. Um, Sims has had a death and dying group for many years, but with the pandemic, we haven't, it hasn't been active. And one of the things we've done in the death and dying group is we offer a small support sangha to those people who are in their last months. Many years ago, I had the honor of being in a support group for this amazing man who, he was six weeks out from death and fell in love. He met this woman, um, and the two of them were just amazing. And uh, so many of us were walking around scratching our heads. What do you mean? You know, you're in hospice. It's over. It's whatever. 
And what a teaching that the two of them gave to all of us of, um, you're not dead till you're dead. And uh, there's so much life that is there. It may not look like we thought it was going to look like, but there it is. Anyway, on that note, and if we can just end with a moment of quiet and such appreciation that here we gather with open hearts and open minds to listen to and to share with each other the truth of the Dhamma. And what a gift that is for all of us. It grows from our aspiration to lessen the suffering in the world. And may that aspiration for the end of suffering be sent out in this Sangha, in our wider community, and to all beings everywhere. May all beings be at peace. May all beings know happiness, connection. May their needs be, basic needs be bad for food and shelter, health care. May we all live with ease and well-being. For all of you who celebrate Christmas, have a happy day and celebrating, I think Kwanzaa is starting. I don't know if there's anybody in our community who celebrates that and a happy new year and happy solstice. And we're now past the shortest um, day and we're going to be getting more light into our lives. So be well. <laughs> <laughs>